0: Join me in prayer. O God, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I've been reading a lot about Joel in preparation for today, knowing that this was one of the lectionary texts. And even though I have been reading commentaries trying to find out exactly who this guy was, you sitting out in the pews probably know almost as much as I do at this point about Joel because we simply know very little about this tiny, beautifully written, prophetic book that's sandwiched in our Bible between Hosea and Amos. It's part of the book of the Twelve. The minor prophets, those 12 ones that we call minor not because of the gravity of their substance, but because of their brevity. We don't have a lot of preserved prophecy of Joel and the other 11. But scholars don't even really know when Joel was speaking to his community. They can date it anywhere between 500 BC and 250 BC, um, narrow window. And instead of a specific threat that we see in a lot of the other prophets, in Jeremiah and Isaiah, of an of a external army that's barreling down on the people, Joel is dealing with two threats. One is an internal one, that these people are capable of messing up things all on their own. And the other one is a natural threat. It's an undomesticated, created world out there that will have its growing and moving way with Israel despite its walls and its temples. So we know that Joel speaks to a people who by now have both defeat and deliverance in their DNA. By now, the people of Israel have the stories of Noah and Abraham, Sarah, Joseph, Moses, the judges, David, and Solomon. They have those narratives woven together as their foundation, surrounding them, giving them their identity. They have story after story of being God's chosen people, being saved and delivered. But they also have in their DNA the inherited trauma of near annihilation. For much more recently than the experienced delivery of slavery in Egypt, this people has experienced the destruction of their entire city, their temple, their way of life when they were taken into exile. So it is these people, with their DNA of deliverance and of great woe, these people are hearing the words of Joel And I bet they're just beginning to release the tension in their shoulders that has been built up from centuries of struggle. And they're still not safe. Listen to the way the prophet Joel describes the enemy that these people are dealing with now. Fire devours in front of them, in front of the enemy, and behind them like a flame burns. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, but after them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses, and like war horses they charge, and with the rumbling of chariots they leap to the tops of mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle." that is the enemy that enemy is a plague of locust it is creepy crawling natural disaster that has taken over the city it's not an army it's not an external force but it's these creatures that have come in and they have affected every single strata of life in israel they've affected the crops they've affected their water supply they've affected their their food supply Joel writes at another point, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. This is utter destruction at the hands of something they have zero control over. Now, Joel does not mince words. He is convinced that this has happened to the people because of their collective inability once again to love justice, to walk humbly with their God. But neither does he mince words about the hope that the text has today. In the scriptures that we have in front of us today, Joel is saying that this plague will end, and not only will it end, but it will end to this future of abundant possibility that they could never have imagined before. In the two verses that precede what Damon just read, Joel tells first the soil not to fear. And then Joel's tell the animals not to fear. And then Joel declares, Oh, children of Zion, be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God. Be glad and rejoice because they will be restored. They will eat and be satisfied. Their threshing floors will be full. Their vats shall overflow. And twice, Joel's make sure to tell them that never, ever again will they be put to shame in the eyes of the neighboring nations. This is one of the most reassuring and hopeful passages that I have found in the prophetic books. And I love God's action in this, because not only is God concerned about their physical well-being, about restoring their crops and their, their water supplies and their animals, I mean, he wants them to be fed and satisfied. But God cares about their psychological well-being as well. God recognizes the shame that these people have endured and promises that that shall be put to an end just as well as the hunger. The verbs here, they are future-oriented. This shall happen. But there's a right now-ness to this understanding. This is right about to happen. And you've got that assurance, that promise here. They are hungry and they are scared and they feel shamed in the eyes of their neighbors right now, but they will soon come into an end. And in the meantime, right now, God is. God sees them. God speaks to them. So it initially felt jarring to me, starting in verse 25, when Joel switches from the right now to this later Joel interrupts it to speak of what's going to come later. He says, then afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And then Joel goes on to speak about blood and fire and columns of smoke. Of a sun turning dark and a moon turning to blood, Joel goes apocalyptic. Jonah, my three-year-old, his brain computes two time zones right now, right now, in what he calls "the later." Anything that is not right now is the later." So, "Mommy, can I have this dessert the later?" Or, "I'm going to turn four, the later." Joel speaks here of the later. Like Daniel and the book of Revelation, Joel turns our attention to the end times, this apocalyptic vision of when our current power structure will be completely turned upside down and subverted. It's the coming day of the Lord that is both mysterious and terrifying. But unlike Daniel and Revelation, Joel's apocalyptic vision is not about multi-headed beasts or dragons or terrifying horsemen or cosmic clashes. Joel's apocalypse is one where the bad things are not completely over. The sun turns dark, the moon turns to blood, but the people are safe. This apocalyptic vision is one where the spirit is poured out on all people, regardless of gender. Regardless of social um, state, regardless of their level of oppression, regardless of their age, the Spirit is poured out on every single individual. And I wonder why the people of Israel needed to hear those words. Because I know why they needed to hear that the plague was going to be over and that they would soon be satisfied that their threshing floors would be full again, that their vats would also be full. I get that. But when they were in that darkness of the locust plague, I wonder why they needed to hear from Joel that in the later, the Spirit will be poured out on every single one of them and they will dream dreams and they will prophesy their prophecies and they will be safe. Donna Shaper. She talks about how our apocalyptic imaginations, our assumptions of what the later will be, especially when we're in the midst of a deep darkness in our own plague, whatever that might be, maybe our plague of locusts or an illness or a job loss or a deep grief or watching the emotional or physical Psychological decline of someone we love, or rejection, or addiction. When we are in that darkness, our apocalyptic imaginations can stay so dark. She says that when all is dark around us, isn't it far too easy to live in the dark darkly? To see this as our new normal, our forever? We limit God to the dark side of the night, failing to see the starry side of the night. She writes that so often we overdo tragic interpretations when all around us beautiful stars exist in the dark. The dark is still there. Calamity can still happen, But Joel is speaking to them in this moment of darkness that your apocalyptic imagination is actually one of hope and possibility and something far greater than you ever, ever could have expected. One where the spirit will be unleashed on your sons and your daughters and the old and the young and even those at the absolute ends of the margins. In our Wednesday night Bible study that several of us are in, we deal with the text that's going to be preached 10 days before. And when we were dealing with this text 10 days ago in our, in our little group, I realized that the Spirit has been poured out. And people are prophesying prophecies, and they are dreaming dreams, and they are speaking. And it struck me with how... So many of us have experienced a deep darkness, but our apocalyptic imagination has been stretched enough to see an infinite hope and a possibility in the later. So instead of me trying to tell you what that might look like, I thought I'd bring a different voice who can testify to it a little bit better than I can, I think.
1: Good morning, my name is Damon. And as always, I count it both an honor and a privilege to be before you today. I remember one time this old country preacher, he told me, he said, boy, if you intend to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you better learn to be instant in season and out. And this past Wednesday, when I walked onto the grounds of this church for the fall festivities, And Miss Shelley there caught my attention and walked up to me and clear out of the blue said, Would you be willing to co-preach with me this Sunday? I knew exactly in that moment what that preacher was talking about. (laughs) But instead of running off towards that big bouncy house (laughs) and trying to hide under it, I nodded my head, I gave her a simple yes and told her that I'd give it my best shot this morning. And then I went and I had a pretty good hot dog, a bag of chips, some slaw. I went and found my way better half, Liz, who had already been there for a while, running one of the games for the children. And I told her I was going to head on home because I had some things I needed to think about. And then in the car, going down the road right by myself, I asked the Lord, I said, Sir, what would you have me say to your people this Sunday? And there was a brief pause in time. And then the Lord spoke into my spirit with such a force, it was hard just for a minute for me to see how to drive down Candler Road. And he said, son, you tell him the same thing I told you way back when you lost everything and you had no hope and you saw no future. Back when I reached down from heaven into that dark place of your existence and I spoke light into it, right here from the second chapter of the book of Joel, verse 25. And I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust and the chewing locust. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God, and my people shall never be put to shame. You see, back then all I had was faith that one day God was gonna bring this scripture to pass in my life. But in the years I've been at First Baptist, I've been living in that restoration. He's made it real to me. And so the first thing I want to say to you this morning is I'm thankful that as a congregation, all of you have stood the test of time right here at the corner of Claremont and Commerce. And I'm grateful today for this amazing place we call First Baptist Church of Decatur that God himself instituted a long time ago and that we, as its body of believers, get to play a small part each day and keeping it moving forward. I work with a lady up there at the steel plant and I was telling her what our front lawn looked like at the fall festival and she said, you know, that big church you go to over there, it's like an anchor in downtown Decatur. And she's exactly right because I'll guarantee you that on any given week, this place touches more lives in profound ways than any organization around here. And that's because that's just what we do. But that's not who we are. Who we are is what I see out here before me this morning, a core group of faithful followers of Jesus Christ, whose commitment to this church and love for one another is what keeps it alive. And so the second thing I want to say to you this morning is that God ain't done with us yet. In fact, in a lot of ways, I think he's only just getting started. Look with me, if you will, at verse 28. And it shall come to pass that afterward, after what? After all those years, we felt like God wasn't ever going to send us a lead pastor, a permanent preacher. And then one day he did. And he didn't just send us no regular old preacher, neither. He sent us a good one. In case you ain't noticed, there's two of us up here this morning with a whole bunch of notes between us to do one time what our pastor does week in and week out, Sunday after Sunday, up here right by himself with just an old Bible in his hand. Look with me again at verse 28. Afterward, after what? After all those times when we'd come in here on a particular Sunday and hear the news that another person, another couple... Another family had decided to leave First Baptist. And that kind of news always leaves us with a sense of dread. Who's going to be next? And a sense of fear. Are we even going to survive as a congregation at all? Well, I got news for you this morning. Not only are we going to survive as a congregation, but we're going to thrive as one. Look with me one last time at the scripture, verse 28. And it shall come to pass that afterward. After what? After all that. God says that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. What days? These days. What God is saying with these verses is that he's got a plan and a purpose for each and every one of us for the sons and the daughters, for the old and the young, for the men servants and the maid servants. And the way he accomplishes those plans and those purpose in all of our lives is not by power nor by might, but by his spirit, saith the Lord. And so this coming week, let's let each one of our prayers Not be that God would pour out his spirit. I promise you he's already doing that. But that is his people. We would be ready to receive it. Thank you. In Jesus name. Amen.